We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 13. In today's episode, we're going to be continuing our discussion about phenomenology, but we're going to explore phenomenology in psychotherapeutic practice particularly a specific method called personal existential analysis. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to take on the position of a client. I'm going to use an actual issue and bring in some things that I've heard clients say as well. So I'm going to present an issue. And Mahila, Zab, and Chelsea are going to do the phenomenological process with me. And we are going to talk about it as we do it. So we're going to demonstrate it. And so you get a flavor for what we mean, what it would look like if you were to take a phenomenological stance and practice with your clients. And then after we do this process, we're going to spend some time at the end talking about our reflections just so you get to know a little bit more about what this process was like for us and to highlight some things that you may be experiencing if you were to try this as a therapist. Do you guys want to add anything to that? No, I think that's great, Janalia. Let's do it. Thank you for volunteering to roleplay this client. We're ready. Absolutely. The issue that I'm going to bring, so just to elaborate first for our audience is, When we're working phenomenologically, we want to invite our clients to bring an experience that they can describe factually. So we want to work with specifics, not just, again, like we said, not just a general, I'm depressed, but really work with something and elaborate on it. So the experience that I'm going to bring is that just generally first, I often have this experience when I am entering into a group of people particularly people that I've never met before, but sometimes even people I've known for a few months. And I'll have an experience of not being understood and feeling like an outsider. And so recently what happened is I started a new course and I signed up for another three-year commitment. And so I know that these are people that I'm about to meet that I'm going to be with for quite some time. And so I signed up for this course, first day of class, I walk in and I just immediately get this overwhelming feeling of just being so different and kind of scanning the room, trying to look for people that I feel drawn to or that I want to be near and just having this feeling of walking down the aisle and people withdrawing their gaze from me. And I sat in the back. It was one of the only seats available, the back in the corner. And I I did have to laugh a little bit because this is like every experience I have of being in a group. So we do the course and then at lunchtime comes and I see everybody group off and talk to people in their sessions. And I'm just awkwardly sitting there by myself. So definitely have an ongoing experience of feeling like an outsider, which leaves me wondering, what do I exude? Or like, what's wrong with me that... People don't seem to want to engage with me in the first time that they meet me. 
And general, what did you see when you scanned the room? What did you notice? Like, can you, if you go back there, and this is like kind of the first step that we are doing the PEA from personal existential analysis, PEA zero, like trying to understand a bit better what are those um, facts, like what did you see, what did you hear, or atmospheres even, what did you notice in the room, in the people that you are scanning, like what stood up to you? I was one of the last people to arrive. So I walked mm -hmm. in to a pretty full room. Almost all the seats had already been taken apart from two in the back. And there were three rows and people were sitting in these, almost looked like elementary school desks, sitting in these desks facing the front. But some people had been turned toward others and already started engaging in conversation with one another. So there was already a fullness. People were talking. It wasn't quiet or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel when you look at them and saw that they are engaging with each other? And it stood out to me that you say it was like in elementary school. And that also brought yeah. up my own <laughs> emotions there. <laughs> so I wonder how was it for you from a feeling perspective? What were you aware of in terms of your feelings, looking at these people behaving like in elementary school and talking with each mm -hmm. other and you arriving late? First, I was quite hopeful because I think I was more anxious that I'd walk into a silent room and then all eyes would be staring because that's not a comfortable position either. So it actually, I felt hopeful at first that, oh, like people are ready to engage and ready to connect. And then as I started walking down, it's a fairly long aisle and started walking down and looking to make eye contact to smile with people. I kind of noticed them withdraw their gazes as I walked past. And then I thought, oh, okay, guess I'm starting from this place again. And so mm -hmm. then I felt disappointed. Mm -hmm. What did you feel when you noticed that they were withdrawing their gazes? I know that you said already disappointment, but mm -hmm. I wonder if there was something before that, like even in your body, like you're hopeful. It, I really struck by that, that you are open and hopeful and it was, you're looking for a good possibility to come out with that, something different than you experienced before. And then you notice mm -hmm. them withdrawing their gazes from you, their eyes from you. And I wonder what did you notice in your body or why did you feel when you first noticed that averted gaze? I think my chest caved in a little bit. I just kind of stopped walking as open because I was trying to watch my body posture. This has been a thing for me in the past from struggling with anxiety and then it has communicated closedness. So I was trying to embody openness. And I noticed, I think when I realized that it wasn't being reciprocated, I had closed back in. Like I could feel my shoulders kind of slumping forward and my sinking feeling in my abdomen is what I think is disappointment, but mm -hmm. could be something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely protected yourself, you withdrew, like this is what strikes me, like from that openness and moving forward and hoping for something different very quickly, that change to caving mm -hmm. in and having almost to protect yourself and the disappointment that this is again, not how you like it to be. And I wonder if you had any impulse, a desire to do something that maybe you didn't do, of course, but spontaneously came up. What did your body want to do? given this i kept looking up at the person in front of me to see if she would turn around and look at me or engage me in some way because people had been doing that and she didn't so i felt myself wanting like 
I was trying to get my books out and I was trying to be organized and attend to what I was doing, but I really didn't want to keep my head down and be closed off. So I wasn't completely hopeless. It was just that like, oh, okay. <laughs> and going to keep trying to communicate. Like I'm here and I'm ready to talk and socialize, but yeah, it didn't come to pass. Mm. It's so interesting that you remain open or try to override something like that, uh, caving in, like your body was kind of caving in your chest. And mm -hmm. yet your impulse was to connect, to look at that person. You said that you kept looking at that person, like mm -hmm. clearly sending the message, I want to connect with you. Clearly, clearly not. Like, okay. And this is what's interesting is mm -hmm. noticing how much anxiety I had that ah. I didn't feel mm -hmm. I could say hi, like that mm -hmm. I could be the one to reach out. It was this, I'm waiting for permission to talk to you instead of just going for it. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that that inability, or I don't know, maybe it's inability, but that feeling, it just didn't seem a possibility to me that mm -hmm. I could do something. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there was a tension between that, you wanting to have somebody meet your gaze, but also maybe not. Yeah, I think what was going on in my mind is what do I talk about? What am I going to say? What do I want to know? What is going on in your body, you know? Like you said, your chest was caving in and you're still staring at the person. Is that to capture the tension that Sav was pointing out? So your body was like literally kind of trying to, you know, cave in and clo close in. And yet you were staring at that person. <laughs> I wasn't staring. Hmm. I was being open to okay. meet her gaze should it come my way. I was also scanning the room, looking around, because I was curious about other people who were there. In my body, I also, I have a very hard time with fluorescent lights and cold spaces, gray walls, and it's just so sensorily overstimulating and deadening at the same time. So I also always struggle going into classrooms and feeling comfortable. Like automatically my muscles tense up simply just because I hate the atmosphere of those rooms. So I was also aware that like I just had a general discomfort from being in the physical space. So what do you hate about that? I'm still not clear about your emotional experience in that moment. There seems to be tensions and tendencies that are at odds with each other. Like again, anxiety mm. for sure and nervousness. And But there is also hope. And then there is also the hating the classroom environment. So I, I was trying to understand so, what emotions are coming up. At that time? Mm-hmm. I would say the tension between feeling disappointment and the part of me that's hopeful is like, hey, well, you don't know. You've been here 10 minutes. Calm down. It's fine. There's going to be more opportunity to connect with people. So I was trying to keep that old script of like, here we go again. Classic. It's going to take me months to feel comfortable with these people. So yeah, the emotional experience was certainly disappointment and feeling like an outsider because I could overhear people's conversations they're much more already well-versed in the topic, in the course material. And I am a completely green. I don't know anything. So there's actually also this feeling of people are having pretty advanced conversations about something I don't really actually know how to engage in. Mm -hmm. So they might as well be speaking a different language because I don't understand what they're mm -hmm. saying. So I guess the main feeling that also touches me and resonates with me as you speak is feeling as an outsider. 
like yeah, I understand the tension between, but that seems almost like a reflective experience of some sort. Kind of you realizing, yeah. oh, I've been through this before. I'm not gonna let myself go into the same scenario. I'm I remain hopeful, or kind of even encouraging yourself to remain hopeful. But I guess the core emotional experience is like, oh, I don't fit in this. I'm different. I'm an outsider. Is that mm-hmm. kind of the emotional experience? Mm-hmm. Definitely the emotional experience, yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you want to do with that at that time? What would you have liked to do? I understand fully that you really try to overcome your previous reactions. So that's for sure that you really try to remain hopeful yeah. and remain engaged. Yeah. But what is the original impulse? If the you original? are an outsider, what would you like to do? I mean, not that I would have, but there was almost this because I've been around the block so many times with this experience that I just wanted to like get up, stand up and be like, so all the assumptions that you may be making about me right now are probably not true. Can we just skip that part? (laughs) And yeah, there was that feeling of wanting to be me, but I've also noticed that I have a hard time in social environments of being me, that it's very easy for me to compensate with whatever energy is lacking in the room. I will pick up that energy. So there's also that feeling or that, I don't know if it's an impulse, but just that immediate feeling of trying to hold on to myself and remember who I am and not becoming part of the strangeness of what I'm experiencing. Janelle, your impulse was very much to almost stand up on the desk and say, yes, I'm here. I'm a little bit strange. I'm not quite like you, Mm -hmm. but I'm here and take me as I am. Or even like, you'll like me if you get to know me. And so there's that assumption almost that I'm not very likable if you just look at me. But if you get to know my personality, you might like me. Mm -hmm. Were you still feeling as an outsider when you are, to use Sav's metaphor, on the desk, like standing up on the desk and saying, this is me? How was that feeling of being an outsider in that time? When I had that impulse Mm -hmm. to do that? If you were to stand on the desk and say, this is me and maybe I'm a bit strange, but take me as I am or I don't care. Would I feel like an outsider then? Mm -hmm. Was Uh, that the emotion experience was still there? Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't think that would have helped me at all. Mm -hmm. So you would hop on the desk saying, I'm me with the feeling of being an outsider. I don't know if I would have been able to say I'm ah. me. I think that was a mm-hmm. sense. It wasn't like that. It was almost more of a plea to please suspend your judgments because they're probably ah, wrong. Okay. I can't say that I know. To be able to enter into mm-hmm. a room and say this is me is still very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I can almost enter a room and say whatever you're assuming is not me. Mm-hmm. Because that's been my experience countless times getting feedback. Oh, I had this impression of you at first, but then I realized this. So it's that feeling of knowing or sensing that like, ugh, whatever it is that you're thinking, which is preventing you from engaging with me is not real. Yeah. Just in listening to you, it almost sounded like getting up on the desk is like blasting away the pretense. Mm-hmm. So you feel um, you continue at that time, you continue to feel like an outsider in the sense that the other people really don't know you and already they react to you. And you mm-hmm. kind of sense that there are presuppositions, assumptions that they kind of, I don't know, put you in a certain box and then they turn away from you. And then your impulse is to tell them, actually to beg them to make a plea like, don't act based on your assumptions. Try to see me. 
Yeah, and I should probably provide context too that I very much, even just in my physical attire, because of course we do make assumptions off of people's dress, I dress very much like I'm from an urban city environment. And I am in a course in which attracts farmers and herbalists and people who work a lot in nature. And so it was pretty obvious even in our attire that we're not coming from the same place of origin either. So that, of course, adds a layer to the felt distance. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for the context. Sorry, I should have provided no, that. It's okay, no. But still, I think the experience of being, a, I mean, it can happen to all of us that we step in an environment when people are different for various reasons, right? So it's still mm -hmm. what we are looking at here. I feel that it's your emotional experience of being an outsider, being aware, or painfully aware of being an outsider and yet turning towards these people and say, try to understand me. Don't put me in a box, even if we are obviously coming from different backgrounds, different experiences. So you still yeah. wanted to connect with them. This is what moves me. Like your impulse was not, uh, okay, well, then if you don't like me, I'm going to go home and yeah. I hate you all and no. all that. It was like, okay, I'm going to stand my ground. The impulse was, I'm going to stand my ground and please <laughs> try to suspend yeah. some of your judgments and see me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the trust, I mean, of course, I was not going to go act out the impulse, but there mm -hmm. was a trust and is a trust that I know this will change, that eventually it won't be this way. I just have to endure it mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. So that was kind of the self-talk that, you know, for mm -hmm. the next six months, this is probably what's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Juno. Like, I think that your experience mm -hmm. is quite clear. And I wonder if you reflect on that even here with us. How do you begin to understand that? What does this tell you? What is that about? What message do you hear or can you listen to from this? So you step in a new group, you already see the people turning their heads, turning their gazes mm -hmm. from you. You feel clearly like an outsider or even based on the context, like the differences of those people, backgrounds. And then yet you, your impulse is to say, "I please see me like suspend your judgments. I wonder as you reflect on this, what does this tell you? If there will be a message in that, what do you take from this? I mean, I think the message of just feeling like I'm in this suspended space of belonging, like being in group by the nature of being there, having been accepted into the program and that we are going to be together for the next three years. So there is some sort of level of belonging and at the same time not having the felt experience of belonging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the sense, I'm not sure what the message is. Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe what I'm trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. I feel that that, for me too, actually, I try to, because I find you incredibly courageous. I think your impulse that it's really incredible like to turn towards these people rather than saying well there is no chance i'm I'm just gonna go home because there is no point right but i think it may be difficult to to capture this message because of your impulse is almost taking a stand for yourself and like mm. aligning with yourself for me the message seems to be you stand up for yourself and advocate for yourself so to speak even when you feel alone and different Almost keep going. 
despite that feeling of nobody's turning around to look at me, but to keep going forward and trying. I, that's kind of the, the message that I'm getting. And of course, Janelle, you are the one who plays the client now, so it's mm. important to, yeah. I mean, you can offer suggestions, mm. but what is seated with you and what is for you is the most important. I think in the moment, at least, the message I don't know if this is fatalist, but it was a little bit of like, dude, this is your lot in life. This is so common to my experience when I enter groups that almost this invitation to start becoming friends with this experience, because as much as I hoped it would be different, it's not. And I would have in younger years walked away, or I just would have been so crippled by it. Or even when we did our existential training seven years ago or six years ago, I was extremely anxious. And so there wasn't that anxiety. So it was like, okay, well, I've changed. I'm not anxious being here. I feel just outside. And do I need to learn patience now? It's just, just a thing I need to accept is going to be a common occurrence for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe no matter what I do, it's not mm-hmm. going to be different. And maybe that's okay. So all those kinds of thoughts were running through. Yeah, yeah, that's very beautiful, Janelle. I mean, the way you capture it, like basically you understood it as an invitation of opening to the possibility that being an outsider is a much more kind of common experience or maybe even defining experience mm-hmm. for your experiences in the world. Mm-hmm. So that is not something that you have to fight or to get better from. Like as you also mentioned, training and your personal experiences, right? But it's maybe something that maybe in those moments you tune into something really profound about being human. Like, and you reach to that experience of being different and disappointment that comes with that. And then yet standing your ground and affirming yourself. But I, but for you, the message seems to be something that I need to befriend. This is part of my experience. Yeah. I think if I compare it to the past, there would have been a lot of blaming. I think I look to other people to be responsible, to make me feel welcome and accepted and to belong. Mm -hmm. And then the relational disappointment again and again and again, when I didn't have that experience in different groups, I think now moving into that acceptance of, I don't know whose responsibility it is. I don't blame anybody, but I'm disappointed. I wish it were different. I can accept it. I don't like it, but I think I can accept it. Yeah, that's very clear, like that you are not choosing this, you are not liking it. You would prefer to be different, for sure. Like even from the first moment you stepped into that room and you really tried to make contact and they didn't look at you. They didn't look back at you. And at the same time, together is your longing and desire. You accept that in some context, at least, it may not be possible. Yeah. That also seems to be your understanding on this. And I wonder from your heart of hearts, from the bottom of your heart, what do you feel like saying to this? How do you relate to this? What's your position towards this? That it may be that sometimes, in spite of your deepest longings to connect, to be part of a group, that's not possible. Does it feel right to you? Is it something that you can live with? Where do you find yourself? Where do you find your stand with that? Yeah, that's a good question because I think I spend a fair chunk of time oriented towards self-growth and just work in those weaknesses. 
and trying to integrate my shadow, as we would say in other disciplines. And so there's that impulse, I think, for me to like, oh, just this is something you got to keep working on. But I think the position that I am taking, at least my body and emotionality is pulling me towards is actually just accepting it. It makes me curious sometimes, though, if it's like, is this acceptance or is this just resignation? Like I said, to Ugh, whatever, it's just always going to be this way. I do think that it is acceptance. I definitely don't like it. I definitely want to belong. That desire is very strong for me. I don't think that will ever go away, but, but certainly accepting that that doesn't come easily for me, that feeling of belonging. And I think it's changed because I'm feeling more that I belong with myself. So this is what you accept, like you accept that in certain situations it is possible that you won't feel belonging. And at the same time, I like mm-hmm. how to me you continue to honor your longing and desire to belong. To me, that doesn't feel like resignation because you are not giving up. Mm-hmm. You're not saying, no. oh, well, if this is what it is, I'm, I'm, that I guess I'm not going to belong and that's it. And I'm fine with it. You say, I feel again the tension, right? The fact that you are in a tension mm-hmm. there trying to accept like some situation is not possible and yet holding on to yourself and what you know that you deeply long for. So I find that mm-hmm. beautiful that you... You have that position also and coming from truthfulness and faithfulness to yourself. That in fact you want to belong. And yet you are open to the possibility that sometimes that's not possible. And then maybe even you'll be hurt by that and disappointed. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I wonder what, since you have such a position that is very nuanced, like not giving up to what you long for and at the same time open to the reality that sometimes it's not possible what you long for. I wonder if there is kind of an invitation for you there to act in a certain way, like what to do is it now? If you were to return to that group even, I don't know if you course ended or not, but if you were to return to that group or to start another course, mm-hmm. what do you see yourself doing knowing this? Yeah, I think patience comes to mind mm-hmm. because what I historically would do is cultivate an experience of another in the group belonging with me. I'm a therapist. I'm a good listener. I can understand people. And so then I often, it's kind of like that trauma response of befriending. Mm -hmm. I would befriend, okay, one by one even sometimes because I'm not very good in groups. And I think I've been resisting that immediate urge to do that because I'm uncomfortable. I think when I would like to challenge myself in is just being patient, as we talked about last session, like phenomenologically being with this experience of being an outsider, even though I don't like it and it's uncomfortable, would it still be a rich experience if I was an outsider in this group? Like, Mm -hmm. could I still be me, Mm -hmm. even if I don't feel seen or understood? And would it happen without me having to orchestrate anything? So I think the position I'm taking is the curiosity and the patience to see if I can let this just unfold and not really have to manipulate or do anything about it. It seems like a deep acceptance of yourself, Janelle, of your own emotional experience and staying with it instead of trying to change it. So it's just beautiful that it's kind of like coming full circle, like back to yourself and accepting you with that experience and with the patience that comes with it and that shows to me that you are very much with yourself because you mm. can allow it to unfold 
and you don't need to control it or to shift it one way or another. And maybe accepting even that you are an outsider sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah, I think that's true. I think acceptance, and this is what it seems so different than how it ever has been, is that self-acceptance piece is there, which I don't think it ever had been there before and when I started grad school or other training programs. So mm-hmm. this is new territory for me, I think. It really feels that way to me. Like I feel the shift. It's not so much about the others accepting you or not and what you do is that, but it's really accepting your experience the way it is with the tension between longing mm. and the pain of longing and the hope. I'm still moved mm-hmm. by what you said a while ago about the hope, right? That you still have the hope. I still ac- have it. <laughs> yeah, but accepting all of it. And being patient with yeah. it and with the experience and with yourself. Yeah. And maybe bringing to us, since we are opening again to a discussion here about what you shared with us, like that maybe being an outsider could be part of our human experience and not something we can eradicate or we can fix even with years of therapy. But before we move into that discussion, I want to thank you. Thank you so much, Janelle, for mm-hmm. bringing to us this client. That it sounds to me that it could be any of us, human <laughs> beings, like who had those experiences mm-hmm. of not belonging or wanting to belong and not really feeling that we are part of something. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Would you like to say anything yeah. else before we move into a, a bit of a dialogue here about our impressions about the process and how we are moved by what you shared with us? I want to make sure that if there is anything that you like to say or to to wrap this part of our discussion, you have the space and time to do so. Thank you. Thank you for that. I know we could do PA for so much longer, but it was actually quite refreshing to take such a simple experience as walking into a classroom and really breaking that down. I haven't done something that simple in a long time. So that was nice, actually, and refreshing to see everything that was going on. Yeah, thank you for being with me through that of course thank you you are so open and so honest and so clear in how you felt so it was easy to resonate and i also feel very moved by where you arrive in your own process the self-acceptance mm. and accepting maybe perhaps a more human yeah. general dimension of our experience yeah that surprised me thank mm-hmm. you <laughs> thanks I wonder to yeah. ask the listeners here and being regional in this process, like at the same time also having a bit of the luxury of not being fully immersed in that experience. What can we comment about the process itself? Like what happened basically? And also if there are mm. any thoughts about the theme itself of being an outsider and where we arrived, where Janelle arrived in her process. Yes, certainly. I mean, I'm sure listeners will recognize that myself and Chelsea didn't participate quite as much. And partly I think that relates to kind of that phenomenological space that exists between, say, a therapist and a client Mm -hmm. and is very much a dialogue between the two of them. And so any outsiders, anybody else observing is almost merely observing. I noted one very particular thing, and this contributes to both A, my experience personally, but also a difference or a difficulty in how doing PEA or just having a phenomenological attitude is, is that I wrote down the words different. I feel that later. And what I mean by that is that where Janelle kind of walked into the room and initially felt different from a personal point of view, 
when I walk into a room, I kind of almost have this maybe innate assumption that I belong, that I'm there, I'm part of. And it's later that I maybe recognize that I go, oh, maybe I don't, or maybe I'm not quite one of you, or maybe that. And so that's one, a personal phenomenological experience, but also an indication for me as, say, as a therapist to go, I need to remove that conception from my brain and put it aside and bracket it Mm -hmm. and go, okay, when somebody walks into a room, it doesn't mean that they feel they belong automatically, but really listen to say somebody like Janelle was kind of describing who automatically feels as if they don't belong. And that's a big contrast. And so there were two things going on there for me. And at least again, for me and for listeners, this way of taking your stuff in very simple terms and putting it aside. So important, and We are definitely moved personally in the process and our own experiences come up. And I also had moments in talking with Janelle and I was also feeling my own experiences and putting them on the side and staying present. And also like, I don't think we said actually about the process itself a bit like what has happened, like a map that would be very brief, starting with when I asked Janelle, what did you notice in the room, right? Staying with the perception, with the facts, and then asking her for emotional experiences, impulses, which are usually connected with the initial emotional experience and then trying to understand like the what what is that about and then how does she understand it and what is the position that she takes towards it in order to make a decision about how to act so this is kind of the whole process that goes from facts uh, being impacted emotional experience coming into some self-distancing from that to understand and then acting because in existential therapy existentialism in general Acting in the world and living our life and existing is the focus, right? It's not so much just to stay internally in our own emotions and meaning making, but actually what decision do we take? What choice do we make and how do we act? So that was just to give the listener an overview of the process of what happened. Yeah, and I think just in observing the process, for me, I think what really came alive was that it felt like from the initial description that you gave Janelle, the PEA process kind of helped deepen it and make it be more tangible in a way. Mm -hmm. Like I felt almost as if initially we were kind of maybe looking at a movie script or show script or something like that. But then in maybe what could be viewed as splitting hairs or looking at something so fine-tunedly and really framing that experience and really deepening that and then deepening that and then deepening that, we actually end up getting some kind of visual or more full experience. I felt like I went from having a more black and white version of what happened to then really being able to picture it almost as if I was watching a movie. And then from there, I could even feel within my own body feeling of tension or, I don't know, an anxiety or stress or tightness in my chest. And I would say my experience for myself, similar to Zav in walking into a room is different, but I felt like I could take on part of your experience or that in how Mahila and you deepened it, I could then start to live and partake in that experience also to understand it in a new way. And I guess that goes back to what we said in our other episode on phenomenology, that when we touch on something essential, 
we are moved. We cannot remain indifferent. And I felt it too with you, Juna, like in several moments when you touched upon something essential. And at the beginning with the emotional experience, I wasn't clear about, I wasn't really drawn. Or So that's why I asked you several times, what was actually the experience? And it was a bit later when you said about the tension and all that that I mm -hmm. felt. But it's so important, like, I mean, for a therapist or a friend trying to do this process to attune to themselves as well. Because if something really important is happening and the person with whom we speak is connecting with something essential, something really relevant, then usually we feel drawn in and we feel emotionally activated versus if someone talks about, yeah, that sounds like a great idea or like such a good position to take, but it's not moving. So that's something also important to attune to our own process because it's nothing magic. It's not from outside that it will come to us what is, again, essential, what is important. There's a big contrast, I think, here to be noted that, say, for example, at least in classic psychoanalysis, where the therapist is this blank slate that doesn't really respond, that doesn't really comment, that doesn't give their impression, really. It's really about the client just kind of free associating mm -hmm. most of the time and, and in some ways almost essentially doing their own therapy. As existential therapists, as existentialists, as phenomenologists, I got it right. Um, <laughs> there is, even if we don't necessarily voice our specific opinion because we're bracketing it, we can't help but feel it. It does move us. We can't stay silent. We can't stay neutral. Yeah, that's so true. Thank you, Savi. Summarize mm -hmm. it really well like that. Uh, the therapist bringing their person to the encounter. That is what makes it an encounter, not mm -hmm. just a professional mm -hmm. therapy session, but actually also, yes, therapy and then personal encounter that also draws out or invites the person of the client in becoming mm -hmm. more personal, both therapist and client. Like, what would we suggest for therapists that feel actually repulsed, maybe, or they feel triggered when the client uh. is speaking? what to do in that moment because it mm. becomes really difficult actually to hold that phenomenological stance mm. when we become activated in some way um, when we feel drawn in and connected mm. i think that that's a safer environment for openness to occur but when we feel triggered or our stuff comes up what do we do somewhat ironically my thinking then goes back to psychoanalysis or just classical Freudian, Jungian kind of stuff and talking about transference and counter-transference and recognizing that this is my stuff. It belongs to me and it doesn't necessarily belong to the client's situation. And the more we can recognize that, I think the better we can assist clients, accompany them, help them. And that's partly about knowing yourself well, but also in this phenomenological attunement attitude is sitting there and going, this is what impacts me. This is not what's necessarily impacting the client. And recognizing the difference between those two. It's not dismissing what I feel, not at all. No, because that would be completely counter to the process, but recognizing that it's my experience. And then 
maybe using that as information and positing to a client. So, you know, when you talk about this, this is what came up for me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean this is true or this is how it is or this is explanation, but offering it to the client as a mm-hmm. possibility, a suggestion for them to either accept or reject. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, sir, but I think we should offer it to the client only after we do our own differentiation <laughs> process, right? Like, is what you meant. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, like, of, uh, of yeah. course. It takes exactly. a lot of training and thinking mm-hmm. and reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, for sure. We would never profession. tell to a client, I'm so repulsed by you because <laughs> right? so that never happened to take our own work and differentiate. Yes. And that. But it's possible, I think you are hinting to something that it's possible that sometimes we feel even those negative emotions, generally, so to speak, because yeah. our clients may feel some of those, but they are not speaking about them or they are not assuming them. So it may be also through attunement that we feel that, but it's really important, as you said, Sav, to kind of stay with ourselves and distinguish and distill what is mine and what belongs to the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, so I have a little bit of a different response with the repulsion piece. Like if I feel that or I feel like a sense of, dislike maybe as I'm listening to the client or a sense of wanting to pull away or not be as engaged. For me, I take that as a clue or some kind of cue that actually maybe my posture towards them is not so phenomenological and that I need to actually be more curious to deepen more, to open more. And I've found in doing that, that then my attitude changes because then I understand something new about their experience that I wasn't getting before. But it's almost like this aha moment that happens where I'm like, oh, okay. And it's that dislike or that wanting to move away mm-hmm. seems to kind of disappear. But I just use that as a little cue or something for myself Mm -hmm. to go, okay, maybe I've lost my phenomenological position in this. But Mm -hmm. I think if you are able to say that and then to return to a phenomenological position, then it wouldn't be transference. But sometimes it's possible that we are so overtaken by our dislike and we cannot return to a phenomenological stance. But if you can, I think that's amazing. Like if you notice that. And if not, oh, I'm kind of judgmental here. I kind of like, hmm, this is not openness. I'm applying my own standards or values Mm -hmm. to that. And if you can return, I think that's great to take that as an indicator of not fully (laughs) bracketing or remaining open. But sometimes it's possible that we cannot return by ourselves Mm -hmm. to that. And I think a fundamental piece is that no matter what we feel, whether it's as therapists with clients, as friends with other friends, our experience, our feeling of it is our experience of it. It doesn't make it fact. But Mm -hmm. if we use that either as information to offer a different perspective, a different opinion, a different experience, or just a different understanding, then that's fantastically useful. So we kind of almost use ourselves as a tool. I know in the existential analytic world, Dr. Alfred Langler has a big piece about using the person, right? Using your person to facilitate the therapeutic process. And to my mind, that's really what the phenomenology and the PEA is all about, is using whatever the client gives you and how it impacts you to give you guidance, to give you a direction maybe to explore, Mm -hmm. not just kind of rigid Mm -hmm. fact diagnosis, end of story. Which also highlights how important it is to trust our own process, to be able to trust Mm -hmm. ourselves and to 
be turning towards ourselves and yeah, trusting that what we experience, it's our experience and it may be ours, it may belong in the encounter, but it's still there rather than saying, no, I'm going to override that and I'm going to apply a strategy because it's uh, evidence-based or stuff like that. So really mm -hmm. it's to take us seriously, basically, and to take our experience seriously, that it's important, uh, vital information for that kind of work. And I also liked how much you checked in about my body and what my body was experiencing. We can bring that into the present too when we're working with clients phenomenologically is to notice what's going on in our bodies and then also invite the client to check in as you're talking about it now, what's happening for you. Sometimes those are also subtle ways to check in. Is this mine or is this the client? Because I feel disconnected, but if they feel disconnected, this might be something actually happening right here, right now versus just my stuff. So the body is also so vital in providing phenomenological mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, Janelle. So important. I mean, there are no emotions without a body expression or body activation. Mm -hmm. So for sure. And when I was asking about your body, is also to help you, encourage you to deepen your emotional experience in that moment, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes if you ask about the body, then the emotion become a bit more clear, more evident. So yeah, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you again, Janelle, for uh, willing to role play for us, this client, and mm -hmm. allowing us to demonstrate a bit, like to show our listeners how this phenomenological process of taking our experience seriously and then coming yeah. to a decision and action works. Thank you. And just maybe before we end, can we just spend a couple moments talking about when you invited me to take a position? Because I think sometimes as therapists, we may mm -hmm. encourage clients to act like you're going to do something or we're going to fix something. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it's just a position in terms of what attitude am I adopting toward the situation? Mm -hmm. What is my general feeling now toward the situation that is appropriate? So I just want to highlight that. Like It's not always a fix, actually, at the end. Janelle, I think that's a fantastic point to raise and also a fantastic place to end. And I remember going through, I think I mentioned, I might have mentioned this in a previous podcast, but this PA experience that I had and the position that I took was that I was going to take no more action. I wasn't going to say or reveal anything more. It was, this was settled within me. And that was enough. Mm. Almost kind of in simplistic terms, we could say doing nothing is often the best way. I wanted to actually say that exactly. Sometimes not taking an action and not that mm. is what is needed, right? But being clear about your position and still making a choice that mm. like of not doing something, it's still a choice. Mm -hmm. that, and this is the point. I'm glad that you highlighted this, Janelle, because I think this is mm. the core of activating, inviting the person to take a position and to stand by ourselves in our experience and relate to it and then say again from the bottom of my heart this is how I am with this this is what I think was mm -hmm. right and this is what is right to do about it so that's really the core of activating you know our personal capacity to respond to our experience to take a stance on it not just to feel because I think in most emotion focused or experiential therapies a lot of Emphasis on processing feelings and working through emotions, which is very good, of course. But it's like how to take a stand on that and mm. how to make a choice informed by that and to feel our freedom 
and the freedom of choice is essential. Totally. I think at the end of this process, hopefully, the therapist is better able to see and understand and have a feeling for their client. And hopefully the client has this experience of being understood, but also a closeness with themselves and a feeling for themselves and a feeling for exactly as you say, that this is a choice that I am making freely and with my consent. Mm-hmm. And talking about consent and anticipating our next episode, I wonder if we can thank you to my colleagues for the dialogue. Thank you to our listeners for listening. And we leave you with the question for the next episode. To what are you saying yes in your life? To what are you giving your full consent? And you can think about the small things that you do every day, like washing the dishes, taking the garbage out, or any kind of routine activities. And notice, do you say yes to those? And even more broadly, like the question is, to what are you saying yes in your life? Follow us on Instagram, at Existentialist Podcast. And let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.